Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode two of Your Healing Nature, a weekly podcast about how Black, Indigenous people of color are reclaiming the outdoors to heal individual and or collective trauma. I'm your host, Brenda Besa, and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Jose Gonzalez, founder and director emeritus of Latino Outdoors. In this episode, we discuss his root story, the power of storytelling, his outdoor advocacy work, healing through the language of ecology, finding ancestral guidance, and so much more. Enjoy. Today, I am so thrilled to be talking to Jose Gonzalez. Jose is the founder and director emeritus of Latino Outdoors, a nonprofit that connects Latinx communities and engages cultura y familia as part of the outdoor narrative. Jose navigates through a self-created identity of a green Chicano as he weaves the roles of educator, artist, conservationist, environmentalist, and Chicano. Jose plays with design, words, science, and education, engaging in the interdisciplinary intersections of how we view and connect with the world around us. Be it a piece of art, poem, or scientific fact, Jose likes to weave ideas with people while appreciating the beauty of it all. Welcome, Jose. Bienvenido. Gracias. Es un placer estar aquí. As Jose and I delve into the conversation, I am reminded of a recent article written about him in the Nob Hill Gazette. In the article written by Laura Hilgers, Jose shares that his life and career have been more like a braided river in which the water flows and bends, but still has direction. And so I ask of him, like I do of all guests, what is your root story? That watershed moment in your life that offered you new insights or messages that changed your life trajectory? See, it's the... Yeah, I'm remembering on that. I remember as we were, as we were uh, having that interview, it'd be like, how do you describe a bit of what, how, how you are? How is it that you are where you are now? And I said, you know, I had to get comfortable with the idea that uh, when I kind of started first in my career, so to speak, I felt relatively clear on what the next 20 years could look like. Uh, and that's because going into teaching, there's a pattern to it. Yes, every year is different. Yes, every class is different. But you have an idea that this is a career you can retire out of. Uh, once I decided to put a pause to that and then go into a bit more environmental, outdoor, nature kind of focus work that ultimately connected to nonprofit and then uh, freelance, I went from like having a sense of 20 or 30 year window to then five year window to then one year window to the point that if you were to ask me, do I know what I'm going to be doing next year? Um, I would say, I don't know. And in the past, that's kind of a terrifying question or answer to have to say that you don't know <laughs> what your work could look like for the coming year. And so flipping that to be a space of, um, some comfort, but I think uh, an acceptance because then you are investing in the trust of then what you're doing that to me is a scaffolded experience. Uh, 
so that I'm relying less on, a, on that linear sequence to say, well, easy, I'm gonna go from A to B to C to D to E, to understanding what I've created as a direction and kind of like what the watershed uh, region looks like. We're still flowing that way, but the sinuosity of how that's getting there thing cannot be surprising to me anymore. And in some ways it's more natural than the channelized version uh, of expectation. So I say that because it's like kind of this watershed moment is appropriate in that it wasn't my decision to migrate from Mexico to California, from Nayarit to California. That was my parents' decision, but it affected me. That's a watershed moment in the sense of like what my future could look like is different because of that. If I had stayed in Mexico, grown up in Mexico, like had a professional career in Mexico, I have no idea what that would be or could look like. I really don't. Uh, but being here, that shifted it. And then another one was, of course, that once I went into teaching and it gave me a professional outlook, but then knowing I want to do more around this kind of outdoor nature work was part of that, you know, kind of the, 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 the tributaries were slightly different. And so I think that's a watershed moment too. And that I think it helped me, uh, uh, I say this because it's less about a divergence, like I was doing this and I'm doing this, and more like a, a frame that allowed me to expand my connections, knowing that they're still interwoven. And so that's, that, that's what I think in terms of the root story element for me has, has added that. The fact that it's, it, it's a, it became emblematic of this idea of a both and. I'm going to ask you a follow-up to that because I've heard you on other interviews where you've talked about those first nine years of your life in Nayarit, Mexico. Nature was so interconnected to the way that you lived your life in those first nine years. You didn't feel like it was something separate from you until you moved here and you started to realize, wow, there's really delineated spaces, like green spaces in the suburbs which is very distinctly different to how you grew up. And so I wonder, did that lived experience of those first nine years play a role in you wanting to also pursue a master's in you know, sustainability in addition to already being an educator? And so um, I was wondering if you could speak a little more to that. It's a good question because I think um, with honesty, I don't, think I had a clear sense or understanding how formative those you know, nine years in Mexico would be. They're incredibly formative, I think, in those initial experiences and really being grounded in relationship with family, with my grandparents. Like it gave me this, uh, you know, just this, this seeding uh, foundation from which a lot, a lot would grow. Uh, whether that played a role in terms of knowing that, oh, I'm gonna to go to graduate school to pursue this kind of work. I think less so because I don't even knew that I would have a sense <laughs> of what schooling uh, would look like in terms of supporting me that. I think what was more impactful in terms of, um, for example, even pursuing graduate work and especially graduate work in relationship to kind of conservation, nature and, and, and outdoor oriented uh, work was as an undergrad working with migrant students in an outdoor setting. 
And so how that connects to those first nine years is that a lot of the students we were working with is me of those nine years. It is the structure of the program such was, was such that we could see ourselves and the students that we were working with. And ideally they could see themselves and us, right? In terms of the future. Um, so that's the way in which is definitely impactful. I think if I had, you know, been born and grown up in the US in a much more suburban setting, there might be an element of that, I think, just through like family and culture, but it would have been very different. It is definitely very different to see migrant youth understanding what that means in the context of um, being an immigrant to this country. As Jose facilitated outdoor learning experiences for migrant youth, he found himself knowing that he wanted to continue doing this important work, especially as he witnessed how migrant youth came to experience and understand the outdoors at the intersections of their multiple identities. He continues to share as I ask him to expand on his experiences in the teacher training program. This teacher training program had a component during the summers that you could do it in an outdoor setting. It wasn't an outdoor education program for the sake of being an outdoor education program. It was meant to be just part of the teacher training program, but they were like, they had this idea, let's do it outdoors. And so that's how it became an outdoor education program. And so that provided obviously the element of uh, skill development for me to be able to do all the pedagogical work in terms of uh, instruction um, and learning how to be a teacher. But then of course it also provided for the students uh, this element of learning in and about the outdoors uh, of understanding, yeah, you're, you know, it's kind of like you're still engaging in summer school, but you're getting to do it in ways that would have, that was new for most if not all of them. The outdoors as a joyful experience, as a learning experience, as a recreational experience. Uh, and some of those, comp and some of those, uh, weeks that we spend one night sleeping outside and sleeping bags under the stars. For many, it was their first time doing that. It was having parents ask questions as to why do they have to be away for a week out there? What are they gonna do? What do they need? Uh, we don't own a sleeping bag. Can we just send them with a cobijas? Like all of these elements came into play. And then of course, for the last component is that in me, it in kind of uh, both in inspired and nurtured and inspired this idea of wanting to have some element of this also be my work, not just teaching in a classroom, but being able to, to do something similar as the students were learning in and about the outdoors. I wanted to be part of the change uh, of facilitating that as well. As mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Jose wears many hats. And if you follow him on Instagram, you know he's also a poet and creator of the funniest and nerdiest memes you'll ever read. However, I also like to think of him as a community philosopher, always giving us food for thought, pushing the boundaries of definitions that we take for granted, decolonizing these definitions, if you will. A couple of months ago, as I went through my Instagram feed, I found he had posted on the etymology of the word radical. The post read, the root of the word radical is root. What if rather than treating radical as some form of outlier or extreme, it is a reminder of how we root ourselves, reconnecting to the root of what is core, nourishing, and foundational in our work. 
When I came across this post, I'd been thinking a lot about root stories, which is the first question everyone gets on this podcast. And in full transparency, the second question everyone gets is inspired by Jose's post. So I asked him, how did the two root stories that you shared with us at the beginning of this podcast allow you to reconnect to the root of what is foundational in your work as an educator, creative, and conservationist? That's a good question because I, growing up in the United States, I, I struggled a little bit with this idea of what does it mean to be radical? Um, and I say this because we obviously all have our own individual personalized um, degrees of comfort, right? Of how much social activists we wanna be. So I think that's a given across the board. But then as an immigrant, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty present in your life because the systemic elements that tell you you don't belong here, the cultural element that tell you don't belong here, the, the fear that something is imparted in terms of like that um, immigration enforcement is used as a, teal, as, a, as a tool of oppression and fear is present. Um, and I grew up with that. And so it's kind of like you have, you know, you're kind of radical just by existing, but also as if like, what is my commitment to community to fight against that, which tells us we don't belong. Um, so there's, there's kind of that, that never, that always uh, stuck with me. And so then as an undergraduate student, you know, I joined Mecha, the Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano Chicano de Aslan. And that was, uh, a weaving of those elements of saying uh, we're here for community we're here to like be radical in that sense of being uh, activists for the benefit of community um, and then you know growing from that as you expand your experience and vision of of what's um, just to do in the world and the range of social injustices and not just how you're there for your gente but how you're there in the face of all oppression how you're there in allyship and accomplishment to a range of communities who've also faced oppression so it gets to be pretty big and heavy but still just and necessary and so i say that because i'm like what does that mean in terms of how we all get to be and decide that you are you know, radical, a radical and revolutionary, that you are, um, that when we talk about social justice, you're an activist in service of that work. And who gets to define that? And um, who gets to affirm and confirm that you protesting and marching on the street is the good kind, and you uh, working within the system or trying to change structural elements and boards and all this stuff, isn't radical enough. So I struggle with that, right? Because it's like, I wanted to know how can it be a both end? So I, I, as I began to dig in deeper and unpack my own learning around kind of the, the, the wisdom of nature and why a lot of indigenous and ancestral knowledge is woven with a lot of this wisdom of the land and what, you know, uh, Mother Earth uh, can teach us uh, and has taught us and how the, the contemporary language of ecology then to me can be a tool to kind of frame this and say, we can do, we've done so much learning with and about the land. How do we apply that to ourselves? And that's what I was thinking about radical as an example to say, well, 
you know, I think that the root of the word radical is root. So what is it about rather than rethinking as radical as being something such such an outlier from you, rather as being something core and thinking about what is the root of our work? And if we are rooted in this sense of like being justice oriented, then that's going to look different because you can't, you know, the roots of a, of a rose and the roots of a sunflower and the roots of a tree and the roots of the manzanita, uh, those are all very different plants. They all serve very different purposes and different ecosystems, but they're all roots. They're what keep it <laughs> grounded. And I'm not going to go up to a root and rose and say, oh, I'm sorry, you're, you're just, you know, I'm sorry. You, you should be more like the sunflower. Go up to a manzanita and say, like, you got to be more like the oak. Like that, you know, the, the silliness of that, uh, I think to me, is apparent in an ecological landscape. And then I am bemused and sometimes infuriated by how we don't extend that grace to each other in our social ecology. A lot of your poetry, even, I've, I've read, and it is so rooted in, in this idea of the type of wisdom that nature brings to us and the way it can be incorporated into our lives. I was going to say, well, it, it, it takes practice for sure. Um, but I say this because I didn't grow up as a writer. I didn't, I didn't grow up seeing myself, thinking of myself, practicing as a writer. Um, and to this day, I struggle with that. Um, though there's two things. One of them is part of the reason of why like this idea of, of writing as a, as a hard thing was because, again, as an English language learner and then coming up through my English uh, language uh, classes in school, I struggled. Uh, I could do well in school, but the, harder, the hardest grades for me were in those English language classes. There was just something about that didn't intuitively click. I couldn't just write an essay and have the teacher be like, looks good. It'd be like, yo, you gotta like restructure your paragraph structure, all of this stuff. So I ended up all the way to college, like being able to write, but not really feeling like, oh, I, I, I know how to confidently write. And it wasn't until many years later, I have a friend who, who was a writer and I was going through this and he said, well, the thing is, I think he said, you're more of an expresser um, and you express yourself through writing. You're not a technical writer. You're, you're not, you know, uh, you may not have been trained or disciplined in the, in the craft of writing, but you can find ways to express yourself through words. And that helped me really think about words in the same way that when I draw, um, yeah, there are certain rules to kind of knowing how to have line and form and shape and whatnot help you, but you're looking for ways to express an idea. And once I kind of thought of words as these elements of play, of these elements of creation, of, of these elements of expression, um, I was better and, and could be okay knowing that I was going to mess up some grammar and some syn syntax. But then also that I'm like, but then it matters less. It mattered when I needed to be in class to earn that grade because those were expectations. But right now, <laughs> uh, it matters less that me for me to be able to say, oh, shoot, I'm, 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 I'm ending it with a preposition or a like, uh, I'm not really thinking about how I'm, uh, using gerunds in this specifically way, I'm really thinking more about what is the word that I think speaks to the element of what I'm trying to say and that I feel says it in a way that I might not be able to express it otherwise. Um, and I've connected that to 
something that I'm comfortable and familiar with, which is the language of ecology and nature. And so that's another both and component that helps me um, express myself and my ideas um, and can, in a way that I, that I can share that. And so that's what you see a lot of that present and why a lot of my orientation and some poetry is around like the hashtag naturally you that plays with, uh, it plays with that. And I think it's no different than, than a lot of the practices that we then can develop into habits that are um, embedded as ceremony, you name it, but it requires action, but it's action with intention. Intention brings a certain energy to our actions. And when that intention is heart-centered, the results are magical. From the beginning, Jose was intentional in centering the importance of storytelling in the mission and vision of Latino Outdoors. So I ask him, how and why was storytelling embedded into the soul of Latino Outdoors from its inception? Yeah, the, you know, it starts with that um, genesis of, 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 of the phrase yo cuento. Um, it comes with that double meaning, right? That yo cuento, cuento being an element of being a story, like the cuento un cuento. Uh, but cuento also is the element of counting as mattering. It's just like, esto si cuenta. Um, so it, therefore, it's kind of this idea of like, yo cuento is I matter through the story. Uh, I matter through a narrative. I count through the stories that we tell. And so that helps ground both, not just, you know, story in the form that I think um, some Western frameworks have devalued the power of that narrative. Oh, that's just a story. You say that as if like, there's no power there. Acknowledging that a lot of ancestral um, and indigenous uh, wisdom and record keeping was through narrative. It wasn't you know, <laughs> archived in a, in a, in a, in a book um, that then was you know, filed away somewhere or in a report. Um, it was shared both through uh, narrative and story that was passed on in the context of community, but was also you know, held by, by, uh, by those charged with keeping the sacred texts in terms of story, and as well as what the, the, the story and the narrative of the wisdom of the land held. So that's ways in which it was all connected and less separated. It was less about like we ripped the story out of ourselves and out of the land and then put it just in a text. Um, so I say that because I think it was a way for me to early on try to honor that, to think about like there's so much narrative and richness in our families and our culture. It's just there. <laughs> um, and that it isn't just folk tale and the way of like fairy tales that we derive from um, uh, kind of the Disneyfication of some of our of our contemporary story making, but that it comes with these lessons, right? It comes with these elements. It comes with the magical realism and kind of cultural elements uh, that have been present. So that was a way for me to kind of affirm that, to kind of be able to say like, hey, the way that we matter in this work is by acknowledging that our stories have power and presence and we have presence. And the way that we get to shape the narrative of ourselves is uh, goes directly against narratives that are trying to shape those for us. 
narratives that devalue us, narratives that tell us we're less than, narratives that tell us we don't belong here, narratives that tell us all that we're all recent newcomers and have to acculturate and acclimate rather than understanding the heritage um, that we also hold in the space. So there's a lot more there, but I think for me, um, is a, it was a way to afford presence and power. As Jose and I continue on the subject of storytelling, I share with him how my own parents have been resistant to acknowledging the power and significance of their stories. And so I ask Jose if he ever received pushback from Latino Outdoors participants as they were asked to step into the power of their own stories. Yeah, it's a good question because I think for sure there are those elements of, you know, within our parents and probably grandparents in which what, how were they supported in valuing who they are uh, through story? So I remember even uh, at some point asking my grandpa uh, if he had ever been to the United States. It's like, oh yeah, we came back here sometime in the 70s or something like late 60s. And I'm like, what did you do? It's like, oh, you know, we went, we got, we, we, we were invited here and we like were helping pick all these crops and whatnot. And I was like, wait a minute, were you a bracero? I was like, yeah. he's like, yeah. I'm like, and you never like mentioned this before. I'm like, here I am, like unpacking the idea of like braceros as these this of this historical importance, and I never knew my grandpa was one of them. Uh, so I think the way that they um, didn't see themselves right grounded in history in that way, but I think also it's probably in the ways that they were not supported. Uh, and they probably likely were oppressed and <laughs> making sure that they didn't see themselves as grounded in, in history or history making. Um, and so the, I think the way that I kind of saw that present both in our cohort of leaders, uh, our first cohort of leaders, was that I think they understood the value and the power, um, but it was easier for them to recognize that in others um, uh, first rather than recognizing that in themselves. And I think being able to understand um, you know, as I would say, but, you know, hold it, who you are, your story has power. Uh, so how are we communicating that? So that this magic, because, you know, people would ask, well, what makes a Latino outdoors outing special? Or like, uh, what, what, what is it that you do that it allows it to connect with like Latino families and whatnot? I'm like, the magic is the leaders, they're being themselves. We're supporting them and being themselves because then I say, uh, the magic is what is obvious to you that you didn't think is obvious uh, or you just take as for granted. But then I'm asking you to think about how do you greet people? Um, what kind of humor do you use? You know, what, what do you laugh to? What do you share about what's familiar to you in terms of food and of memories? Those are all elements of stories that participants connect to and see themselves reflect to. It's a familiar, those are the elements of culture, as we would often say that culture at its minimum is what's comfortable and familiar. So you are sharing culture that is communicating to them. This is comfortable and familiar in such a way that I want to participate with it and I want to contribute to it and I want to share because basically you're connecting these stories together. As we continue to discuss the power of story and the potential it has for community healing, I ask Jose if there are any particular stories that come to mind. Well, it's several. Um, there was an example of um, 
have a family that I'm incredibly grateful for and proud of. Uh, working class parents from Mexico uh, came to the United States and had their, their kids here. But they had not grown up with like the outdoors as an enjoyable or healing recreational space. And so knowing that their first couple of outings were these introductions to be like, ah, it's, we're out here and long walk, it's hot. <laughs> what, what about these things? What is it about these things that are enjoyable? But we're willing to come out here because, you know, we see it advertised, we see it communicated, and I want to go with others like me. And so knowing that that was an example of a process that started pretty like, this is new to me or unfamiliar, to the point where they're now, uh, you know, they book their own campsites, they, they coordinate with other families to go on some death experiences, they go to the REI store, the dad, you know, started as a quinceañera photographer, and he still does that. But then he got into nature photography as part of this, you know, he's entering his pictures into like, state park contests, like that example of not just the growth, but I say healing, because I remember him sharing that he said, I would never want my family to go camping. And I, I would ask him, you know, why? And he said, well, you know, down in Mexico, he got to be part of one of these kind of uh, youth programs where they would take you out to the monte to like shape you up to be a man. And that was all traumatic for him, right? So to him, camping the outdoors, this idea of being out there was saying, why would I want to like anybody else to experience that? So him coming out here and experiencing camping in community uh, with support with elements of joy was restorative. It was healing. It allowed him to then be able to think about, we can provide something here differently for our kids, for each other, um, and understanding how they could do this growing as a family with this component of nature and the outdoors that uh, unfortunately, sometimes not enough immigrant families in the, in the U.S. have. As we transition the interview to the topic of healing individual and or collective trauma in the outdoors, Jose shares the importance of unpacking the word trauma as many people use the term as a catch-all for harm. He also reminds us that yes, nature, the outdoors can be healing, but that engaging with nature oftentimes has to be done within a community of support and care. Otherwise, it has a potential to trigger us in ways that do more harm than good. Yeah, that. You know, that, that can be such a heavy question for some people as they unpack what um, trauma, right, has been and meant for them. And sometimes I think, you know, we use that word a lot um, as a catch-all for all kinds of harm <laughs> that, that we have experienced. Um, but then I think of, you know, sometimes when we talk, when I've talked about trauma in terms of the physical sense, we're saying well, it's blunt trauma or these elements. It means it's, it's bodily injury. It's an injury not just to a part of your body. It's an injury to, to, to the whole of your body, uh, to the systemic elements of your body. Um, and that it isn't just, I got hit and now I'm healed and it's done. Is that it, it left a mark. Um, you're, you know, you're connecting it probably to a memory. It's, it's a traumatic experience in that way. So when I think about that as emotional, as cultural, 
uh, generational trauma to me has meant is what is it about this harm that persists such that when I encounter uh, experiences or example, it reminds me of that pain. It remind you know, it comes up, I am triggered. Um, so that's what I think about trauma in the sense of, you know, healing it doesn't mean you easily and automatically remove it and it's gone. And sometimes it's a life work. Uh, uh, it's a life's work to undo that. So for me, it's meant a first trying to figure out and unpack trauma. I didn't maybe know that I had. And part of that might be because I didn't know I was carrying it because it, I inherited it <laughs> from my family, my parents. Um, part of that has meant that as, as, as a male, um, there is trauma in the sense of what the absence of intimacy and kind of emotional connection that comes uh, between men in a healthy way uh, that I can't blame my dad for that because it's not like he intentionally was depriving me of things uh, or oppressing me in particular ways, but he never had that. So it's kind of like he was doing the best that he knew how to do, um, but then allowed me to reflect and saying, what do I feel that's missing and what am I privileged in receiving as I go to college, as I grow up in this uh, culture now, as I develop rich uh, friendships with men here, that I realized, shoot, I never had this. I'm like, I never greeted my dad with a hug. It's like, well, I can change that. <laughs> Healing means like being able to go back and say, I want to greet you with a hug, dad. I'm sorry if you feel uncomfortable, uh, you know, but this is what I'm going to do. So as, that as elements like that transferred out into outdoors, it, it meant that the outdoors could at minimum provide a platform in which you were now removed from a lot of the elements that um, triggered or reminded you of trauma and kind of the human built environment. It connects you to peace, it can, it, you know, in a supported environment. I say supported because you also don't want to drop people out in the middle of the woods and say, you're going to have an amazing time. You've never done this. Uh, we're going to leave you out there. Good luck. That can also um, engender trauma because you're reminding people of what abandonment looks like, of what like having to, to survive uh, uh, looks like and so forth. So I want to be, you know, cautious and intentional just to say like automatically, you know, nature is going to heal you. It has to still be with these element of not just self-care, but community and systemic care, uh, much in the same way that um, you know, when we have a physical harm, you don't just get cut and say, well, don't worry, it's going to heal. No, if there's bleeding, you got to stop the bleeding. Um, if you need to support your mobility, you need to provide the uh, scaffolding to, to make sure that, you know, it provides the, um, the support for healing. Um, if you uh, need to make sure that you change some of your habits, then you need to make sure that you change some of your habits to do that. So I say this because I want to be careful and that sometimes we just say nature will heal us. Uh, it's going to take care of our trauma. Uh, you just got to like take people into the outdoors and it's going to be fine. I'm like, no, you have to like have all these other elements. And yet when you do that, nature is probably one of the most powerful elements of healing um, because philosophically, spiritually, culturally, in terms of generation, that's a return to the land. 
that's a return to how we as humans grew up with the land. And so a lot of that ancestral memory is still there if we're willing to reconnect to it, if we're willing to be open to those elements. And that's why a lot of the work that I've been approaching now has this element of healing severed connections. In October 2018, Jose wrote an article in Bay Nature about how his relationship with the outdoors and nature starts with the look, sound, and feel of his huaraches. The huaraches are a connection to his grandfather, who would wear these handwoven leather sandals everywhere. From hiking to tend the meat bus, to pushing the ice cream cart, or walking on cobblestone streets. As a child, Jose was given his own pair of huaraches. However, after age nine, once he immigrated to the United States, he no longer wore them as he focused on, quote, the task of not being too Mexican, end quote. He goes on to write, so now I carry my huaraches as a reminder to myself and others that this is mi cultura, a part of my culture that belongs outdoors just as much as I do, as much as others do. It's a visual reminder and it's an emotional reminder of early childhood in Mexico, my grandparents, and how all my outdoor experiences, whether that be in the cornfields, in the pages of the REI catalog, or outside magazine, or out on Bay Area trails, that my culture comes with me. And so I asked Jose whether reclaiming the huaraches was a healing process for him. I'd say yes, because it, uh, first in terms of kind of the cultural elements is knowing how, what it meant for me to shift from growing up with what I feel was a lot of shame around quote unquote culture. And what that meant is there was little to nothing positive that was communicated to me about being Mexican, for example, right? To be Mexican was, was bad. It means you were poor. It means you were quote unquote, an illegal immigrant. It meant like that you didn't know English. It meant a lot of things <laughs> that few things were telling me you should be proud of that. Uh, and, and that's, um, that's messed up because I think it can reinforce a lot of the negative uh, cultural elements that we're trying to undo. Uh, and it inhibits um, a lot of the positive cultural elements that I think can be um, helpful. And so it wasn't until college and then kind of going through the first Chicano studies class, really under better understanding history and heritage, that I could then think about these are there are things that I have inherited that no longer serves me, or that I think that or that I believe no longer serve us. And there are elements that are thing do serve us. There are elements that it's important for us to really pay attention where they come from and what it means to carry them forth. When we talk about la cultura cura, what does that mean? What is it about that so that can be assistive in our healing? And so knowing that once I, I got, uh, that I, I was in a more confident space with that, then I could look at what does this mean in the outdoors? Because if I didn't have that, then the outdoors was a reminder of the absence of that. It was this one I kind of said, you kind of, you have to leave your cultura at the trailhead. Well, now you're going to go hiking. So you're going to have to have specific shoes. You're going to have to have specific clothing. You're going to have to have specific food. And so I didn't want the outdoors to be a reminder <laughs> of like who you are not. I was like, how can the outdoors serve as a reminder of who I am and, and becoming and want to be? And so that's where I started to pay attention to like what ashes. What is it about what ashes that's special to me? How does that reconnect 
to my culture, to my grandfather, to things that I feel are special and that I can now have that in the outdoors. Um, so that's a little bit of how that was restorative and healing because it was like, you know, it's healing those severed connections. In keeping with a the theme of family and culture, I ask Jose, how do you experience the sacred and find ancestral guidance in your day-to-day life? Oh, that is a good question. This, oh, I'll try answering this way. So the way that I approach the sacred is, um, one is I acknowledge right, that I was raised a cultural Catholic. And I think cultural Catholic really get a chance in terms of deciding as a kid, you're, you're Catholic. And so that was my introduction to, you know, dogmatic religion. Uh, say, lo siento sin ofender uh, <laughs> to, to many. But at least it, it, um, it began my process of understanding what is it that I care about in terms of my spirituality? What is it that calls to me? What is it that I appreciate? Ultimately, that meant that I, I appreciated this sense of um, at church, I used to be in the choir and I would play the piano. And I love that sense of being in alignment. Um, and so later on, as I really unpacked and better understood ancestral and indigenous uh, sacredness and what sacredness meant both in terms of a religious aspect, but also just as uh, what is uh, special and divine uh, in my surroundings, I began to look at it as being able to say, um, if the divine is present you know, all around, for me, what helps me walk uh, the path is acknowledging what does it mean to be in this idea of alignment and alignment being in my most divine self. And what are all the things that pull me out of alignment to be in reactionary mode and reactionary mode tends to be when we're kind of our worst human selves. Those are both true things of being human. That's just what human being is. <laughs> that's what, a, you know, that's what, what being human is. Um, because we're here. This, this is the reality uh, of this existence at, at this moment. But the fact is that we are still connected to the divine. And so sacredness then looks like for me, what is it about rituals? What is it about ceremony? What is it about physical and cultural spaces? Um, what is it about foods that um, to be sacred means to me that it is a not just a, a connection or a reminder, but in being in that alignment, to be able to say, at this moment, this is what it's reminding me to be here. It's almost like an <laughs> a energetic, energetic baptism, if you will, that you get to have when you need it. You don't just get it once when you were a kid and you're set for the rest of your life. To me, it's like, I need to right now go and meditate uh, by this tree. And this is reminding me that um, if I only think of this tree purely in its utilitarian context, as something to be used, as something that produces a pencil, right, as something that produces paper, that I am removing the sacredness from it. I am othering it and objectifying it 
in ways that are know are harmful and are part of the causes of so much harm in our world when we otherwise and devalue, even dehumanize each other. But if I sit with this tree and remember what it means to be in breath with this tree, we are in breath together and that it is a community member. Uh, what, how does that change relationships when um, this has these familial connections as we do with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers? And the tree may have utility. That is still a truth, but it's not the only truth. Um, it has truths beyond that. And that allows me to recognize the sacredness of the experience, the sacredness of the relationship, the sacredness of the space. And so that ideally I can be more responsible with my actions. I can be more uh, accountable, hopefully for sure. I'm still gonna make a lot of mistakes, but it's very different. I remember uh, reading uh, an example from a professor that said, you know, unfortunately this one time PG&E, you know, the local utility provider had to come and like cut the branches of this tree for the power lines and all of this stuff. If you don't care, it just be like, whatever, cut the branches. But if you do care, it's like, you got to go out there and like have a talk with the tree and say like, look, I know this is going to suck or, um, you know, I did the best we could do or like, this is what's happening. Uh, this is what we're going to like work with them to make sure that only these branches are cut off. Like you, you understand that it's like um, if I, if I completely devalue you, <laughs> then I'm only perpetuating the ability and ideas to devalue others. And that's dangerous to me. That's, that's removing the divinity out of um, each other. It's uh, removing the sacredness. Um, and that's, something that just you know that's <laughs> i've chosen that not to be my path as i reflect on jose's thoughts regarding the divinity and sanctity that we share with mother earth i'm also struck by his observation that as humanity devalues her we also devalue and remove the divinity in one another thereby normalizing these behaviors, which ultimately lead to societal and collective trauma that is not only experienced by us in flesh and blood, but also experienced by the land. A couple months ago, I had the pleasure of watching Dr. Gabor Matei's documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma. I share with Jose that Dr. Matei firmly believes that the disconnect from the body of the earth has to do with the disconnect from our own bodies. And so Jose continues his thoughts on the subject. So I agree. Because I think when um, some of the presentations that I do, I said, we, we talk about colonization, for example. Um, and there's different ways that you can define that. Uh, but one, one way that somebody explains it, how it's a, a removal um, of our earth connected selves. And um, somebody else helped frame in terms of the idea that if you look at the, the ideology or rather the logic in terms that drives colonization is this mechanistic, mechanistic reductionist logic that how can I mechanize our relationships? How can I uh, reduce right, th that which we are for the benefit of being able to extract, <laughs> to consume, to capitalize and so forth, which is not the same as a life affirming logic as I was talking about with the tree. And so being able to flip that 
um, then allows me to at minimum push my thinking at minimum. Ideally, then I can have practice and habits around that. But um, thinking in terms of then what does this look like in the context, like you said, how do we treat each other um, and, and the land? And that's why um, I provide those examples that, that, that I think you, you've noted before to say, you know, it's, it, it becomes apparent when we compare how we talk about a, a team operating like a weld old machine compared to a team operating like a well-nurtured meadow. What, and what does that mean in terms of thinking about how we define relationship with each other, how we value leadership, like all of those different things. As I shift the conversation, I ask Jose, what have been the most challenging and rewarding experiences in your efforts to center justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the outdoor industry? Part of it comes from um, even the early work of Latino Outdoors. Now we've often said we were trying to intentionally be in a bridge building, so to speak, in a, in a, in a space of connection. And that means that when we do it well, we're going to be supporting these connections between individuals, between spaces, between uh, communities. Um, that, that you can see this is, right? We can be uh, in relationship to each other. I said, so that's, that's gonna, those are gonna be all the yay moments uh, because even with something as intentional and as strategic as it was to use the term Latino outdoors rather than raza outdoors or like Hispanic outdoors because people have reactions, right? To all those terms. Someone like Latino will, Provide us a starting point to be able to say this will not um, cause the National Park Service to be like, oh, what, Rasa Outdoors? No, sorry, we can't work with you. Um, but that's also not going to cause, you know, a lot of our more um, rightly so um, activist community members who would see the word Hispanic and automatically see, uh, sell, you know, sellouts. So, so, but that's an element, right? We also weren't going to be able to please everybody. So we knew that was a starting point, but it was a starting point also that allowed us to do the work. Uh, so those connections meant, yay, but it also meant <laughs> that you were also in a position to get it from both sides, that they, they could both look at you, right, with this trust to be like, to attack you. So that, I say that because in this work, that's what I mean about the greatest blessings and the challenges come just from the nature of how one tries to be present, that how one defines how we can be, again, quote unquote, radical in this space can, can be so um, defined so differently from others that they will look to either try to co-opt you or convince you to their side, so to speak, uh, or attack you for not being there. And that's hard because for me, it challenges me to like be in a space of compassion. And, you know, it's kind of like the four agreements. It's not, it's not about you, um, it, but that's hard because you feel it, right? But it's different to be able to say, I cause harm and I'll have to be accountable and responsible to that rather than they are acting from a place of, of hurt. Um, and so they are responding probably in the ways and with the tools that they best know how, which unfortunately aren't healing. Um, 
And so that's hard because I sometimes naively want it all just to work out, to be good, to be nice, <laughs> to be like we're there. Um, so that's a, that's a challenge, kind of uh, knowing that part of this work is as, as I, speaking for myself, feel we're fighting um, in the face of systemic oppression, essentially, that we're trying to really create better futures, better presence. But as we're doing that, um, we also have to be aware of the dangers of, of rigid radicalism that decide kind of who, who, who's in and who's out in terms of um, how we should be doing this work. Or as somebody once put it, you know, they're like, um, you know, if you feel free to excommunicate me from the church of social justice, if this is how we're supposed to be dogmatic about it. And that resonated with me, not because I thought, oh no, right, we, we, we shouldn't be quote unquote radical in those ways, but rather because I felt like the space that it held, if it excluded so much more of us, I was concerned that we're, then we're not really sustaining uh, the communities that are gonna be necessary to keep fighting the big fight. It benefits the system for us to be so fractured and, and hurt and hurting each other. And that's hard for me to say because I'm cautious that I don't wanna sound that I'm being prescriptive, that I am dictating how people should uh, be in the space. So that's part of what's hard. The reality that we're talking about these conceptual and structural elements, and yet they're, they're real lived experiences at the same time. <laughs> like it still hurts in many ways. As I linger on Jose's comment that we are not sustaining the communities that are going to be needed to fight the big fight, I ask him about future generations. How do we begin to create sustainable practices to ensure that BIPOC youth are creating a life-affirming relationship to nature? Yeah, it's disheartening a lot of the times to, to realize and know that so much can be said in our early childhood. In other words, if we don't really be intentional with that support, with that nurturing, with that care. We're setting pathways um, that um, are harmful. And, and I say it's disheartening because I wish it wasn't that the case. And yet so much research shows like, look, if you're not supporting literacy in this way at an early age, if you're not supporting um, just education overall, if you're not supporting like enriching uh, relationship building in these ways, like that all compounds in negative ways later on. As the expression goes, right, you can either uh, tend to the, to the needs of the children now, or you're going to need to tend to the needs of the broken adult later on. So we can't, <laughs> it's where we're investing and why. And so, you know, as you said, with teaching, I think that what framed this for me is acknowledging that as a teacher, if you're really there, if you're really invested because you care and you believe in this, it's you don't choose to say I have 30 kids in my classroom and because only five of you seem to care, then I don't care about the rest of you. Like the challenge is being able to say, what is my role to be able to support all of your access to this learning? It isn't just because, well, you annoy me, so therefore you're canceled um, and I'm not going to teach you, which is hard because I know that's not how it automatically works outside of the classroom. I understand the value and importance of boundaries, 
of ensuring that we support each other and how to use consent language, uh, of ensuring that we are creating spaces for growth, but that is not an invitation for harm. Um, so I say that and the fact that that challenge of teaching was that, to be able to say, it's, I'm not doing my job if I discard individuals within that just because of my own personal preferences, biases, or because I don't think they're worthy of that access. Um, so transferring that to the outdoors for me means, obviously we're always gonna need the resources because just as in teaching, you can't expect teachers to just like figure it out, right? With 30 students in the classroom and then not be supported in doing that. That's why we're saying it's not, if we're relying purely on individual, uh, uh, you know, uh, thinking that the individual is just gonna fix it, then we're not doing this right. That's where the community and systemic care also has to play a role. As I share my overwhelming sense of frustration with various systemic elements, I tell Jose of a webinar I attended on women's sustainability, where I learned that the National Park Service is attempting to attract a diverse pool of applicants. Currently, the NPS workforce is 83% white, 62% male, and 9.5% report having a disability. Jose expands on the type of accountability that needs to be in place to truly create systemic change at the federal level. Yeah, and that's the component around to say, you know, like you mentioned trauma-informed, and then I think, and as well as healing-centered, um, that they can go, you know, it's important that they, to, they go at minimum hand-in-hand in, hand in terms of how we are able to both better assess, determine, and acknowledge what's broken, so to speak, but then also what are we building um, in its place? What are we nurturing and so forth? Uh, and so that if you are um, you know, speaking to MPS, those are systemic elements. If you're trying to build uh, the future of the service with the structural elements of the past, uh, it's going to be really hard, difficult, challenging, or impossible. And it doesn't mean that, that you know, every, then they all have to be discarded. For me, that's at both end to be able to say, it's dangerous for me to say like, all right, 83% of you white people, gone. It's more like how um, the reality is that the demographics of 2050 are going to be very different than 1950. So what is your role in that transition of power? of what you're handing over, of what you're expanding, of what you're co-creating, um, because otherwise you're holding on to that power in ways that are, uh, can be harmful, right? You're, you might be more thinking, how can I hang on in this position as long as possible just for my benefit, rather than what am I actively doing right now to ensure that this is handed off um, to the future right now? That's easy to say, but I say that not, not because um, I think that dynamic of fear-based, uh, you know, change attempt guides so much of our work that then we don't, we, we say we want to do it, but we don't do it. We keep running into those walls and we're only delaying a lot of the change that we could be uh, implementing. Um, 
And so that's why I'm thinking of like, yeah, I want you to recognize the problem. I want you to tackle the problem. I want you to understand that the problem is, is harmful. But if, because um, if you are in denial of the problem, it's not going to change. If you are resisting the problem, it's not going to change. Uh, but I need you to like at least have some form of ownership because then we can look at what are we building in its place. And we, it's hard to even get there if so much of the fighting right now is even in just the owning, if the accountability uh, of the problem. And we get so often stuck there, just like these conversations around like, well, critical race theory is that, that I'm like, that's an example of you're just resistant <laughs> to, the, to acknowledging a reality that's important for us to acknowledge. says outdoor advocacy work has been and continues to be healing and impactful beyond measure because his actions come from a space of heart-centered intention. As we come to a close, I ask him, what role does intention play in coming into our purpose individually and collectively? That was a good question that I sat with because I was thinking of the way in which intention isn't just what you mean or, or what you would like. Um, it's being able to, for me, set the space in which the path can be walked, so to speak. Um, and to ensure that it's also aligning you with the sense of accountability because there's going to be impact connected to that. Ideally, it's going to be the positive impact that you were hoping that manifests out of your intention. However, um, it, uh, it also acknowledges that we can have unintended impact. Uh, and so hence, hence why one of the agreements that we often use in a lot of this work is, you know, support or presume positive intention, but then tend to impact our own impact. It's that if we only get stuck on saying, well, I, I intended well. Um, it excuses us from the fact that we could have still caused harm. And so that it's a way that you can have good intention and then still acknowledge that um, the impact is something to own. But, but beyond that, before that, uh, acknowledging, of course, there's people with malintention, but that's not where I won't go right now. I'm thinking about what helps us set, quote unquote, good intention is for me, uh, both the orientation and that the orientation comes from, um, you know, I'll use a map metaphor since that can be helpful. As I'm going out on a hike and I want to go to this trail, I could say I intend to get to that point over there. Uh, and I intend to do that in an enjoyable and like, or a joy-filled, exciting, ex you know, inquiry-driven type of experience. To be like, heck yeah, I want to have that kind of day. Yeah, who wouldn't? Um, having said that, it isn't going to happen by just me saying it. <laughs> I have to then kind of put my plan into action and be like, well, here's my map. I need to make sure I'm oriented well. Because if, if I start walking them this way, then there goes that good intention. I'm going to not go in the direction that I want it. And then once I have my direction, then I actually have my manifestation, my actual um, uh, implementation of some of that intention 
which means I actually go, I start walking, I start experiencing, I start um, evaluating these components. If I intended joy, then what lets me know I'm actually supporting those practices of joy? Uh, if I intended inquiry-based type of exciting ex ex exploring, then what's letting me know that I'm actually pausing and asking questions or being curious about where I am rather than just like running to the point. If I got to that destination as fast as possible, not caring who's around me and just kind of like wanted to bag the peak uh, and dominate and kind of the colonial uh, <laughs> extractive ways, that was, then I didn't meet my intention. I got an outcome, but I mean my intention. And so that's the way in which I, I think about different facets of intention beyond just saying it. Well, I have good intentions. They have good intentions. Cool. What is? What are all the elements that let me know that that intention can bring forth uh, for me, speaking for myself, the reality that I that I love to see that intention manifest. One of the many things I admire about Jose is the way he seamlessly communicates and expresses himself in the language of ecology. There's a sacredness to every word he speaks. It almost seems frivolous to transition into the fun five, but we do nonetheless. My first question to him is, what are your favorite three things in nature and what do they tell us about you? Great question. For the record, I always struggle with like top three or top one and whatnot. Having said that, I will say three favorite things. Uh, one of them is flowers. Uh, I really enjoy and like flowers. And I say this not really being a botanist uh, or not really like having, having, having any trained capacity as a flower, um, <laughs> studying flowers, so to speak. But what I love about them is, or rather what it, I think it tells you about me is that I'm willing it's an element of joy and fun and silliness, but more specifically in terms of flowers, when I first started really like advertising with them, if you will, um, it's to, to just, I don't know, it's like push some of these ridiculous gender constructs. Uh, we were using the, the hashtag, do you, do you even flower frolic, bro? Um, as a way to kind of be like, you know, you enjoying flowers, what does it say about you? That you enjoy flowers, that's it. Now you might have a bunch of other attachments that that you need to unpack and decide what what comes up what comes up for mind for you, but for me it's like they're joyful, but also they're just ridiculously amazing. They're colorful and they're like designed to attract all these amazing pollinators, and yet they're broadcasting colors that we can't see because they're on a different end of a of the spectrum. So it's just they're amazing in that way. Uh, another thing is that I love redwoods or very tall trees. Um, because they give me a sense of scale and perspective, like just standing with them and being able to like, it really grounds my experience of like, I've been on this earth for this many years, you've been on this earth for this years, and yet you're stationary, like it really pushes and messes with my perspective of being present. Um, and then the other thing is ridges. I really enjoy ridge trails. Uh, because same thing, they give me this aerial view perspective. It just really connects me with the majestic. Uh, and there's just something about those elements that uh, it's probably the closest I could imagine for myself 
being some form of astronaut, like when you first see the earth or get a sense of how ridiculously small we are in the cosmos. And then like, given that, how crucial and important is it that I missed that particular call or that I didn't take out the trash on that day? If I'm only focused on that, it probably ruined my day for that day. But then I think about like, how do I want to set the context of some of these things? And sometimes these ridge trails just give me that. They, they, they lift my spirits. Which of your ancestors would you most like to meet? I admit that part of that, I don't even know. I think it's like, well, there's elements and I don't know, right? Some of my ancestors, how far, how far they went were and what they did and so forth but still given that I would kind of love to meet one of the first ancestors that encountered the Spanish colonizers um, or even you know whatever generation of those colonizers because I know my heritage uh, my indigenous heritage is, is more Cora and Huichol um, even though I prescribe to a Mexica cosmology but I'm just curious what that would have been like and, 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 and having a conversation with them and say, like, what do you think? Like, what, what's going on here? Can you tell me about these experiences? You know, would I be bold enough to change history and say, like, God, don't, don't uh, <laughs> take them out, take them out. No, uh, I, I say that with humor, but I just I'm curious, right? Like, what did that mean in like that type of interaction? That's an amazing answer. The third one is, how would you like to spend your elder years? Mm. I've sometimes sat and thought about this, right? Because I approach it one of two ways. One of them is I look like at my grandpa. And just by being and staying active, by the acknowledgement that in Mexico, in the Pueblo, he doesn't want to be still. He doesn't see the value of not doing anything. So he'll be like, oh, today we're going to go take care of a pothole in town square. Oh, today we're going to go um, hunt for something. Oh, today we're going to, I'm like, he's just active. And so that's one way in which I want to spend my elder years, like not be confined physically in some ways. And I'm afraid of that because I think like all it, all it, um, it could just be a bad diet. It could be like apathy. It could be cultural elements here that have you be an elder, a constrained elder, right? <laughs> In ways that off you go to the nursing home uh, or to elder care. So that's one way. And then the other one is I don't want to suffer. And I don't know what it is about feeling like I don't want to persist in a non, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, as if like I'm hooked up in a hospital to be able to say that like my last days or months are going to be in these elements of care uh, rather than of giving. So I know that I guess as an elder, I want to be active. I want to be joyful. I want to be contributing. But I think most importantly is I want to be grounded still in nature and the outdoors. If you could give all human beings one virtue, which would you choose and why? that's another hard one I was like I want you to have the virtue of admitting that you're wrong the <laughs> there's many right obviously virtue of patience virtues of compassion all of these but I think so many struggle with ego work and specifically with, with this element of like you know reserving the right to change your mind when presented with new information 
to me that's powerful because I think it could ameliorate so many of the conflicts as well, so much, so much of the intractable issues that we often face just because someone doesn't want to admit that they were wrong. And the last one, what space and place most dramatically influenced your life? Hmm. That is another challenging one because I think about all the places that are yet to be and yet to come. Uh, and speaking of growth, right? How, 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 will, I, how will I outgrow this answer? Um, so what I can say is uh, I'll give one example. Yeah. I'll give one example. I think there's, there's others, but one that has stood out to me has been visiting the Arctic uh, National Wildlife Refuge. And I think about that because I love how somebody, a writer described the landscape as oceanic. So you can just look at it. It's kind of like looking at the ocean in the sense that the, it, your scale is thrown off. You can't really tell how far away something is just because of how big and broad everything is uh so that just in, just it's like being in those ridges just threw me just challenged my perspective as well as that the only place to get there is in a small bush plane uh and that's it there's no wi-fi there's no connection there's no roads there's no anything <laughs> and you're out there and you're out there uh in the few sounds are the ones that you make of course and that other wildlife make so all of a sudden you, you get, I, basically it was a real, uh, it was a fascinating awakening in terms of being connected to the land and to oneself. Um, because it's kind of like, it is kind of like being out in the middle of the ocean. Sometimes, you know, you think about being in a super constrained space and how uncomfortable that could be because then you're like, I can't get out. This is the opposite of that, but with a similar feeling. It's wide open, but then you're like, there's, there's no, <laughs> but then there's, yeah, there's no place to hide. <laughs> so it was just an amazing challenge, right? Because in so many of our, many of our spaces, whether it's in, within our houses, right? We can go from one room to the next. In cities, we turn around the corner of the street and, in, in, you know, in parks, go behind the tree or something. But this was just same thing, just oceanic in scale, and then just big and broad. Thankfully, a, a grizzly bear did never uh, approach us closely. Uh, although that, otherwise, that would have been a different formative experience. Um, but I just I remember very much how, how much that landscape affected me. Wow, that sounds amazing. How long were you out there for? Out there for a full week, rafting down one of the rivers. Where can our listeners find you and how can they be of service to you in advancing the work that you're doing? Thank you. Well, at this moment, I'm on social media under Jose Bilingue. So that works both in Instagram and Twitter, for example. Um, so relatively easy to find in that way. In terms of support, I think, you know, I'm always encourage and invite everyone to support Latino Outdoors. You can, of course, make a donation contribution in that way, a referral. Uh, if you're in an area where there's a, there's a team, uh, join them for an, for, a, for an outing, for an outdoor experience, uh, maybe even volunteer, become a, be, become a leader in that way. Um, and then in terms of, you know, just the work at large, I would, you know, it really starts with 
I'm not in the position to kind of just say, well, hire me, because I think I'm, I'm privileged enough to say that the work that I do still serves community without me needing to like uh, pitch to people <laughs> that should, should hire me. But uh, having said that, though, I think what I've, un- what, what I've understood is probably one of the best ways that we can support each other is to think of one of two things. One of this is what, what does it mean to support interdependent relationships? Uh, because doing, doing that, it's a way that we elevate each other, that we ensure that we are actually contributing to a different dynamic. Uh, as, a, as a leadership example that was shared with me back in college, as we used to work in our, on our outdoor teams, if we're out here and I'm focused on me, look, if I'm focusing on myself looking good and you're focused on yourself looking good, then cool, that might be a way that then we both end up looking good. But if I'm focused on you looking good and you're focused on me looking good, then that's another way that we can both look good. And we're building the relationship helpful that can be necessary for us for trust building, for for community building and so forth. So I always welcome people in terms of that. And I know that's their present, but I also know how much the pressures of toxic individualism are at play to uh, that in part competition over community rather than community over competition. Um, and then last but not least, this challenge for self-transformation that it's easy to say, but it's really hard to do. But it's this element that, you know, we, the more we can ensure that we both support our own growth and these ideas of growth-oriented frameworks, right? The better we can be in being able to, to care for others care for, and care for ourselves. So how would, how would the person that you would like to be do what you're about to do now? Thank you so, so much. And as we close up, what parting words would you like to share with our listeners to support them in their learning, unlearning or relearning how to center intention, healing and purpose in their lives? It's been a pleasure. Gracias a todos. You know, the way that I've both challenged myself and others with this is to say, um, you know, our willpower, willpower is not inexhaustible and our intention isn't uh, 24-7. Um, it'd be nice if, if, if we were indefatigable in those ways. But that means then uh, we have to first ensure that we identify and really think about our actions. Like, what are we doing? Uh, and then we have to think about, uh, you know, the knowing, I should say, like be clear in our direction and know what we want to do. And then we actually have to have the practices and the actions in doing it. And then we have to be uh, aware of the environment in which this happens so that our actions are facility, you know, that that facility, that space facilitates our actions rather inhibits it. And I'll share this with some humor. You know, it's kind of like for some of us who decide to say, you know what, I'm going to start eating differently. And I want to do this because whatever it might be. I want to fit into these pants that I had before. I just want to feel better. Or the doctor told me I had to, it doesn't matter. And so then I say, great, I'm going to go ahead. My knowing is I'm going to, I know I need to do this. I know what I need to do and so forth. It doesn't have, knowing isn't enough. If you don't do it, it doesn't actually happen. The doing is actually then being able to say, cool, I'm going to do these exercises. I'm going to eat these differently and whatnot. Uh, but the change spacing is then actually being in the spaces to have that happen. So if you didn't clear out all the cookies out of your uh, kitchen cupboard, um, then they're still there. And then don't be surprised if at two in the morning, you all of a sudden ate half of the box because the space 
you know, didn't facilitate your good intention and your actual action in doing. It would have probably been better if you had taken those cookies and given them to a friend or something. But I say that with humor, but I think that that's a good example to really be uh, aware of both the individual uh, and the institutional components of the self and of the systemic uh, components that are necessary to ensure that our intentions actually lead to meaningful, nurturing, healing impact. Thank you so much, Jose. Mil gracias. And I know that you're writing a book. So I hope that when you're done and it's published, yes, I'm so excited that you'll come back and you will talk about it. I'm looking forward to it. Gracias. As I listened to this interview several times through the editing process, I kept thinking about how the contemporary language of ecology permeates every aspect of Jose's life. For those of you who have heard episode zero of this podcast, you know that Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is the foundation of this podcast. So in keeping with Jose's rootedness and indigenous wisdom and nature's teachings, I want to share a passage from Braiding Sweetgrass that reminded me of his story. Dr. Kimmerer writes, the Sky Woman's story, shared by the original peoples throughout the Great Lakes, is a constant star in the constellation of teachings we call the original instructions. These are not instructions like commandments, though, or rules. Rather, they are like a compass. They provide an orientation, but not a map. The work of living is creating that map for yourself. However, to follow the original instructions will be different for each of us and different for every era. Sin duda, without a doubt, Jose has created that map for himself and impacting so many of us while doing so as our paths converge. So in the spirit of Jose's story, I want to leave you with this exercise and reflection for the week. If, as Dr. Kimmerer says, the work of living is creating a map for yourself, one that is distinctly you, what steps do you need to take at this moment to become your own cartographer? the person who produces a life-affirming map, and what does that look like in the context of your community? I know this is hard work, but so many of us, including myself, try to control our own nature, erecting rules and boundaries that no longer serve our present selves and the future self that wants to blossom into existence. This isn't going to be easy, but be ready for the way in which this map will guide you back to your healing nature. Thank you so much for staying with us through the entire episode. If you resonated with the storytelling in this episode, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review if you're so inclined. We are streamed on all major platforms, so follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To remain connected, please follow me on Instagram at underscore your healing nature. And feel free to DM me or email me at info at yourhealingnature.com. As we go on this journey, you will also find resources under the highlight section of my Instagram. Lastly, I'd love for this podcast to be as collaborative as possible. Therefore, BIPOC community, if there's a topic, theme, or even guests that you'd love to hear from as it relates to healing trauma and or rethinking the outdoors, please let me know. Mil gracias. Every day I'm walking in sunshine.